Our second scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 16 and 17. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who bore Jesus, who was called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This too is the word of God for the people of God. Practiced those names a lot. You are welcome. (laughs) Do not applaud. It's not that good. I think that even at 36 years old, I am a bit of an enigma to my parents. And what I mean by that is that I am pretty sure that they're not entirely sure where I came from, how I turned out like this. Green eyes, Pam, curly hair, Carl, sense of humor, both. But I know that it has been a bit of a head-scratcher for them to figure out how I ended up with my ideologies, my beliefs, my passions, and particularly my career. I know that they have wondered more than once what they did that I would turn out a pastor (laughs) in Atlanta, who is a feminist and sometimes kind of an anarchist and who gets aggressively worked up, to put it lightly, about injustice, who uh, participates in public protests and marches, who is uh, argumentative and contrary with family members about politics, um, and whose whole vocation is tied up in the belief, in the desperate hope that the love of God is for everyone, and that the kingdom of God can and should be enacted here and now. And it's sort of comical to me that they can't see it that they cannot see the direct line, the taut thread that runs from the stories they told me and experiences they gave me as a child to make me exactly who I am today. As a kid, my mom worked nights in the hospital, and that meant that my dad had to make my sister and I breakfast and get us dressed and put us on the bus before he could go into the office. I also knew that my mom was the major breadwinner in our family, And we all knew that Pam was the head of the house. She still is, really. I watched my mom care for her friends and our neighbors, and I watched her refuse to take nonsense lying down. She stood up for us and advocated advocated for us and defended us. I think my elementary school teachers have just now recovered from those parent-teacher conferences. And then there's Carl, 
As I have said from this pulpit before, my dad took my sister and I with him to NA meetings weekly, and I watched my dad be vulnerable in front of his peers, share his failings, ask for forgiveness, walk alongside other men and women in the program, exhibiting quiet strength and lack of judgment. We found our chosen family in those rooms, and my parents opened our home to people that we met there, surrounding us at parties with a diverse cast of characters who all had pasts and difficulties, but who were always welcome in our house. So all of that to say, Pam and Carl, this is in fact your fault, um, and thank you very much. So every person has a host of stories and experiences and family history that, for good or bad, has the potential to influence them and shape them. And the same can be said for Jesus. And I imagine we don't often think of Jesus's formative years. I mean, with a few very small exceptions, the Gospels jump from infant in the manger to grown man at his baptism. So it is easy to believe that Jesus came out fully cooked, already the adult human, the adult human God that he was always meant to be. But Jesus, like all of us, had a history. He had a family of origin, had parents, and eventually siblings. He grew up in a particular time and a particular place. So how is it that the Jesus, uh, that Jesus became the man we read about in the Gospels? What shapes him from his birth in Bethlehem to his ministry in Galilee and Judea? Is it by mere happenstance or simply by divine intervention that grown Jesus taught in the temple, proclaimed scripture fulfilled in the crowd's hearing, or that he called followers who were common, ordinary tradesmen, that he refused to let a crowd stone a woman accused of adultery without first asking everyone gathered to examine their own sin, thus saving her life, or that he came to serve, not to condemn, that he ate with tax collectors and sex workers and religious leaders alike, that he healed and drove out demons and wept at the death of a dear friend, that he allowed a woman on the margins of society to anoint his feet with perfume, that he turned over tables and called out the powers that be, Whose voices did Jesus hear when he stood in those places, when he found himself in those situations? I like to imagine that it was his mother, because I can picture Mary working around the home, maybe kneading bread, hands covered in flour, and young Jesus standing behind her, pulling at her skirts in need of attention, or being tucked into bed by his mother, asking for just one more story. And so she told him their family's story, their family's history, as she worked the dough or pulled the blankets up around her boy, Mary wove together the tapestry of their ancestors. Son, there was Tamar, she would begin. Tamar, who after losing her wicked husband, was married to her late husband's equally wicked brother, who then also died. Twice widowed, Tamar was promised marriage to another brother by her father-in-law Judah, but Judah never intended to protect Tamar, so she takes matters into her own hands, using her cunning and her body to get what she was promised by Judah. And in the end, she is proclaimed as righteous, 
more righteous than her dead husbands and more righteous than Judah, and she is engrafted into our line with the birth of her twins, Perez and Zerah, a woman who took her fate into her own hands and refused to let men get away with treating her as less than. Ah, but then there was Rahab. Rahab was not even an Israelite, you know. She lived in the great walled city of Jericho. She provided for her family as a sex worker, and she had heard of God, of how our God dried up the Red Sea as they escaped from Egypt. So when Joshua sent spies into the city, Rahab assisted in their subterfuge, hiding them and lying to the soldiers so they could escape. And in so doing, she secured her own safety and the safety of her family. And when Jericho laid in rubble, Rahab and her family left with the Israelites. She married an Israelite man, and this foreign sex worker would become part of the line of Israel's greatest king, David. But we can't talk about David without telling the story of another foreigner, the Moabite Ruth. Ruth married an Israelite man who had moved to Moab with his family during a famine, but then all the men of the family died, leaving only Ruth, her sister-in-law, and her mother-in-law. When Naomi returned to Israel after the death of her husband and sons, Ruth insisted on following. Although Naomi told her to turn back, although there was no guarantee of safety, no promise of any kind of financial security, Ruth would not leave her family. Ruth's love so big that she could do nothing else. Where you go, I will go, she told Naomi, cementing the depth of loyalty and the relationship that she could not and would not live without. There is yet another woman in our history, Mary would then tell Jesus. Some folks may insist she not be given a name, but she had one. Her name was Bathsheba, and Bathsheba was seen by King David, seen and desired, and that king's desire would become a pregnancy, and that pregnancy would become a plot to kill her husband Uriah so that the king might cover his shame. And that plot would become grief, a deep, powerful grief at the loss of a husband and then the loss of a son. But her story wouldn't end there. Bathsheba, remember her name because she had one, Bathsheba would become the mother of kings, and she is a part of our family too. She stands among our ancestors. These are the women of Jesus's genealogy the stories that Jesus would have been told, the history he claimed. His family tree contained the names, the lives of gritty, strong, cunning, loving, vulnerable women, women who hoped for a better world, women who loved deeply and who, whether they knew it or not, were participating in God's story. So we get the Messiah, the king we have been waiting for in Advent, because of these women. We can follow the direct line, the taut thread from the stories of Tamar and Ruth and Rahab and Bathsheba to the man, the God incarnate, who knew the messiness of being human, one who did not discount someone based on where they came from, one who called out the abuses of power and lifted up the lowly. And then, of course, there is Mary herself, because she too has a story, a hope, an ideology that would have seeped into who Jesus became. 
The story continues with her, with the yes that she gives to Gabriel and the song she sings while visiting her relative Elizabeth. The Magnificat that Kate and Marcel read for us this morning speaks of the hope of a world turned upside down, where the proud are scattered and the hungry are fed, where there is no longer a hierarchy or fear, a world of love and peace and justice. That is what Mary envisioned for herself and for her son and for the world to come. In the hill country outside of Jerusalem, in the town of Ein Karim, there is a church. It's the Church of the Visitation, traditionally believed to be the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth, where John the Baptist was born and where Mary traveled to meet Elizabeth. The church was built to com commemorate the visit between these two ordinary women, both unexpectedly bearing extraordinary sons. In the courtyard of the church are ceramic tiles. It's something like 42 tiles, each in a different language, that contain the words of the Magnificat, the song that bursts out of Mary when Elizabeth calls her blessed. Because, as it were, Mary's song of hope is for all people. The chapel at the Church of the Visitation, the upper chapel, is dedicated to Mary. There's a huge mural of Mary. But it also pays homage in the art on the walls and the ceiling to other iconic women of the Old Testament, like Rachel and Miriam, Judith, and Deborah, and Jael. The Church of the Visitation at Ein Karim reminds us that Mary has been grafted into generations of women who practiced liberation through subversive songs and solidarity. Mary was formed by the stories and songs of her ancestors, and then she herself composed a song, creating a legacy, weaving herself into the un unwritten genealogy of women who birthed the sons and daughters of Israel. And she sang for generations to come. Hers was no solitary song, but a prophetic chorus born of solidarity with many matriarchs and with Emmanuel, God with us, working salvation even through her. The mother of Jesus and the mothers of all the mothers who came before her paved the way for the inbreaking of God, not just because Mary gave birth to the Messiah, but because she participated in God's story for creation participated and raised her voice and spoke of the way the world should be, the way it could be. Because she joined her voice and her hopes to the women of their genealogy and of their history, these ordinary, complicated, unexpected women are agents of the kingdom of God. And their stories, Jesus's stories, tell us about the kind of Messiah he is, the kind of kingdom he came to reveal and proclaim, the kingdom that we have been listening for, waiting for, all through Advent, a world turned on its head by a God of hope and peace and joy and love. In the same way that we experience this God of reversals in Advent, Jesus was raised on that hope. It was quite literally flowing through his veins, his blood was steeped with the stories and the songs of his matriarchs. In these kingdom stories, we are reminded that God does not come into the world in a neat, clean package. God does not come into the status quo, but with 
and through the ones who are willing to say enough is enough, the ones who are willing to put themselves in harm's way for others, the ones who are forced to stay nameless so as not to shame the powerful, the ones whose love is big enough to take them away from home, and the ones whose hope uh, is for a better, more just world. We see that God has never been deterred by the ordinariness of people. High rank, economic security, or a pristine sexual history were not necessary for participating in God's campaign of radical love. Everyday people, foreigners, widows, survivors, mothers, and a girl from Galilee paved the way for the kingdom of God. God has never required something extraordinary. Rather, the kingdom of God can, and in fact always is, found in the ordinary, unlikely acts of hope, of justice, of defiance. That is the Messiah whose birth we await in Advent, the Messiah we wait for still. A Messiah who is the continuation of God's story of redemption and hope through ordinary people. So friends, can you follow the thread of God's story, God's work of redeeming the world, God's work of peace and justice? Can you follow that thread in your own life? How have the stories of Advent shaped your own? Because as God is in the business of using the ordinary to do something extraordinary, the story is ours to continue. As we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus, may we remember the people who have participated in this kingdom work, the ones who stood in the gap and paved the way for God's incarnation. And may we remember that, the, uh, that we are celebrating the arrival of one who invites us to be active participants in bringing a more loving, more light, more peaceful world to all people. I hope that you will follow those threads in ordinary places that something extraordinary may spring forth. Amen.